You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks so much for joining us. I am so thankful today we get to talk with someone who's really been on all sides of the entrepreneurial journey. He's helped build companies. He's gone through incubators. He's worked with venture capital. And now he's on the other side of that, helping to educate the next generation of leaders. And we are here today with Naveed Nathu. He is with the Knowledge Society. The Knowledge Society is a global human accelerator for young, ambitious, curious people who want to make a meaningful impact on the world. Naveed, thanks so much for joining us today. We're glad to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, Naveed, let's jump right into it. Please tell me what you guys are up to. What was it that got you passionate about launching the Knowledge Society and how'd you get started? It's a great question. Uh, so it goes back to around 2016 when I was living in San Francisco, the Bay Area, and my brother actually came and visited me. So he was working at McKinsey at the time out in Australia and Japan. I was at Box through an acquisition, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in this podcast. And I was leading the machine learning and AI team there. And we started talking about what we want to do next. And the question he asked was, if we had $10 billion in our bank account, what would we do? And at that point, when you have $10 billion, you're not thinking about what you would buy, right? If you're going to buy all the fancy cars, the fancy homes, literally everything, you probably still have... Maybe a rocket ship or two, but beyond that... Yeah, exactly. And even with the rocket ship, you still have a couple billion left over, right? Which is crazy. That's right. So what it really comes down to is how do you want to spend your time? And that question helped us kind of filter how we want to spend our time. And for us, the answer was we want to make as much of an impact, positive impact as we can in the world. And so we thought about, okay, what's the best way to do that? Is it curing cancer? Is it eliminating malnutrition? Is it climate change? Like, what is it? There's so many problems in the world. And ultimately, when we thought about all these problems, we looked at the list and said, holy shit, there's a lot of problems in the world that need solving. Why aren't they being solved? And ultimately, we think it's because there aren't enough smart people in the world working on these meaningful problems. And when you look at the root cause, we thought it's because the education system is not necessarily built to help people thrive, to help people learn about how they can make an impact in the world and play a part in making the world a better place. And so we built TKS. And the whole concept is there are young, ambitious, curious people out there, just like us when we were in high school. And they aren't getting the guidance and the environment to help them thrive, to help them understand how they can make an impact in the world and the tools they have available to them. And right now, the tools are insane. There is no other period in time where there is this much opportunity in the world. We're looking at AI, nanotechnology, blockchain, quantum computing, synthetic biology, cellular agriculture. There is so much happening in the world today that people don't know about. And it's because the education system is not built to be adaptive. It was built once and it kind of just stayed that way. And we need new systems to educate people. We need new systems to grow and develop young people and generally just people. But the way, the way that we design TKS in the Knowledge Society is for kids 13 to 17 years old to help them learn about these emerging technologies, to meet like-minded people from around the world. We have over a thousand alumni 
that have been through the program from around the world, like 30 plus different countries, and they are working together to, to make the world a better place. So hopefully in the next 10 or 20 years, the next Elon Musk type people are TKS alumni. And you know, for us over here at Mammoth, the way that we actually got to know Naveed was our chief legal officer, Erin Heck, her daughter actually is one of those thousand alumni. She recently went through the program and we were just so impressed. Every week we, you know, we'd get in our team meeting and we'd be talking about our good news and Erin would consistently bring up the cool stuff that her daughter was up to through TKS. So uh, that's awesome. But Naveed, you blew my freaking mind. Here's what I think I heard you say. Basically, you and your brother are sitting there. I'm just envisioning you're like over a game of cards or I don't know, you're out in the bay. So maybe you were surfing. You're just sitting on your boards and you're like, hey, how can we move from success to significance if we've got this uh, limited quantity of time as our main commodity moving forward. And I think that's what a lot of uh, successful entrepreneurs ultimately end up landing on is what's the ROI on my time for this next chapter of life? That's certainly been uh, a question that my wife and I have asked ourselves over and over since having our exit a while ago. But then the answer to it was you're looking at all these uh, root causes of all these problems that are happening in the world. And you realize the biggest root cause of those problems is not having innovation. So that's the part that blew my mind. It was like, you found the root cause of what everybody else sees as the root cause. I mean, it's awesome. That's like next level for sure. When you talk about adaptive education, what does that look like for TKS? It's assuming that the world's changing. You start with that assumption. You assume that in five years from now, the world's going to be dramatically different because the world is changing exponentially. And that concept of exponential is not comprehensible to human minds. We naturally don't get the effect of compounding of exponentials. And the reason why we don't know this, for example, is if I, if I told you to imagine taking 30 steps forward you know, 30 linear steps forward, you could kind of imagine where you are, right? Just picture yourself outside, you know, outside your house or whatever. You take 30 steps, you're like, I'll probably be around that area. Now, if I told you to take 30 exponential steps, so every time you're doubling, people can't even imagine where they would be. No. And the answer is you would be from the earth to the moon multiple times. Wow. That's crazy. And the point is not math. Like math is great, but the point is that our brains don't understand it. Our brains don't understand, you know, that concept if you, would you rather have a penny that doubles every day for a month or a million dollars, you know, and the penny doubling every day for a month turns into like an insane amount. It's that concept, right? Now, the thing is that's happening with the world. The innovation that happened in the last 10 years is going to happen in the next three years, Hmm. right? It's not about the last 10 years is going to equal the next 10 years. There's no way. Yeah. Even if you just look at the last 30 years, the amount of innovation and discovery and knowledge has far surpassed in order of magnitudes the whole history of Homo sapiens, <laughs> right? It's, it's incredible. And when you actually look at a, a timeline of you know, when we first discovered language, when we first discovered agriculture compared to the last 30 years, it's like, holy crap the human race is just crushing it, right? Like we are, we are going nuts right now. The problem is our systems to develop people are not built for that. It's not built 
for the age of Google. You know, our education system was built before Google. As soon as you have something like Google and the internet and now blockchain and AI and all of these applications that's built on top of all this stuff, you need a new system. You need a system where we're imagining and, and we, we assume that people are not going to retire at 60 years old. We assume that people are going to live till maybe 120, 130, 140 years old. And when you have systems like that, we also need to assume that careers need to change throughout your lifetime. It's not, not okay to assume you're going to be in one career your whole life. Or if you're an entrepreneur, to start one company and that's it, that you're going to do your whole, whole life. It, it doesn't make any sense. Because one, things are happening so quickly. People are exploring new things. People can be educated and, and explore different passions. But also, things are going to be obsolete. The thing that was the, the next big thing five years ago doesn't even exist today. And you yeah. see this, you know, in the music industry, it's a great, yeah. great example, right? CDs, MP3s, DVDs, all this stuff. That's happening everywhere. Or even for investors, just take a look at the S&P 500 and how we've morphed completely away from manufacturing toward uh, the Internet of Things and Internet 2.0 and now going beyond that very quickly. So, absolutely. So, that's kind of... That's where we started. That's an initial core hypothesis. The world is changing exponentially. How do we develop and teach people to thrive in the future? And by the way, that's an important word, thrive. Because the way I think about education is there's two sides. You have survive and you have thrive. Hmm. The survive side is how do we educate people to survive in the world? The thrive side is how do we educate people to thrive in the world? So when you really think about the two on the side of survive, that's where you get high school, grades, university, because you know it's surviving. Because if you don't go to university, it's going to be hard for you to get a job, right? If you don't graduate from high school, it's going to be very difficult for you to survive in this world. But if you do graduate, if you do get a university degree, are you going to thrive? Not necessarily. That's right. And so what is the system in the world today that if your younger self went through, you would think I'm going to thrive in the future. There is no system like that. If it was Harvard, MIT, Stanford, then you would have tens of thousands of people coming out of these institutions, just changing the world. But that's obviously not the case, right? And so what is that system? The closest system to that, I think, is the startup accelerators, Y Combinator, Techstars, Alchemist, AngelPad. I think those are the closest systems today to help organizations and people thrive. How do you go from just a founder and idea to a multi-billion dollar company like Reddit, Airbnb, Twitch, Dropbox, Instacart? There's so many of these companies that have gone through these accelerators and become billion dollar companies. How do they go from zero, you know, one or two people in an idea to multi-billion dollar valuation and, and IPOs in many cases? That is the system that we need to figure out and replicate for people. Well, that's a great transition point for me, Naveed. So uh, I know you have personal experience with Techstars and with Alchemist. What were some of the most important things that those incubators helped you to discover and be able to innovate as a result of having that type of environment in front of you? The first thing you, you actually nailed it, which is the environment itself. You are the average of the five closest people around you. And everything is relative to us, you know. We are relative people. If There is no absolute. There is no objective. If you're around a certain level of quality of people, that is going to be your bar. Now, I grew up in Canada, and I'm nothing against Canada. I love Canada as a country. But when I was uh, building my first company, 
the people that were guiding me, mentoring me, were not the smartest people in the world. And it wasn't until I went to the Bay Area and I, I went to Seattle, which is where I did Techstars in the Bay Area, is where I did Alchemist, where I met incredibly smart people. And that shifted my bar for what smart was. And it mm. changed my perspective of my bar for myself and what I need to be learning to get to the place where I need to be to be successful, at least the definition of success I had for myself at that time. So that's the first thing. The environment matters. Where are you placing yourself? Who are the people you're surrounded by? What is the culture of the area you're in, right? And how can you be more uh, intentional about that? The second thing was tied to that mentorship. I was about 20 or 21 when I started uh, Airpost, my first company, I guess second company or first real company. I'd say my first one was like a project, but I was young. And these accelerators exposed me to some very smart people who guided me, who mentored me, who helped me understand everything from fundraising to sales, to marketing, to hiring, which are things that you do not learn in school. And I was just talking to a university friend of mine, college friend of mine, and, I, and we went through business school together. And I told him the most important thing we never were taught, which is hiring. If you're in any sort of managerial position, the most important job you have is hiring people and managing people. And those are the two things you are not taught in business school, which make zero sense to me. Well, I would submit, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, uh, maybe even if they did teach us that in business school, there's some stuff you have to learn it in when actually doing it and to have real time learning and to have mentors as you're going through that has really been what's uh, helped me help shape me in terms of dealing with people, which any entrepreneur knows the hardest part of any business is absolutely dealing with people. It's casting a vision that everybody uh, is moving on the same page with and then helping keep people playing at their peak performance level in a way that, you know, isn't burning them out or tossing them aside and, and really allowing people to achieve the best that they can possibly achieve. And, you know, we've come to believe, you know, even if that's not with us, that's okay. Naveed, how about, you know, tell us what Airpost does and how that all kind of maybe about your journey from launch. And then, you know, our, our audience is going to be largely current founders and future founders, and then investors in founders and future founders. So what would you especially say to those folks as you kind of walk us through your journey with Airpost? I'd love to hear about your involvement with venture capital. I'd love to hear about the, the eventual exit to box.com and then that transition when that exit occurred and whether you stayed or if that was a point for you to leave the organization. I think all those things would be really, really fascinating for our listeners. Yeah, definitely. A I mean, lot, lot of things to unpack there. So let's see how far we can get. So what Airpost was, was a cloud security company. Basically, our hypothesis in 2012 was that organizations are going to be using the cloud and not on-premise solutions. And that data is going to be stored outside their corporate networks. <laughs> that sure proved to be true. <laughs> yeah. Good, good work on the hypothesis. And, and it's, it sounds so obvious today, right? But when you, when you go back in time, it wasn't as obvious. It wasn't as obvious that all these tools were, were going to be as ubiquitous as they are now. So that was the bet we made. The bet was that Dropbox, Box, Evernote, you know, all these different applications are going to be used in companies, even like Salesforce and LinkedIn and all those things. There's, 
important information getting stored there. So how do you identify the important information going to those applications? How do you protect it? How do you provide visibility and compliance and regulatory oversight to these companies, especially if you're, you know, need to be HIPAA or PCR compliant or any of those things. So that's what AirPost was, was based off of. And, and remember when I told you I was like 20 or 21, when I started building that company, I didn't know anything about security. And I guess the first piece of advice I have is build the skill on how to figure things out. I think that is the most important and transferable skill to have as an entrepreneur as a venture capitalist, as, as literally anybody, learn how to figure things out. And that I think was the sole, I mean, that and a strong team were the two reasons why ultimately we were able to do what we did with AirPost. It's because we were just relentlessly figuring it out. We were talking to people in the industry. We were talking to the VCs investing in security companies. We were talking to the JP Morgans and the Nikes and the Procter and Gambles of the world. And we were trying to understand, you know, where is this industry going? What are the assumptions that we're making and what's the probability of those assumptions for being true? And how do we figure out that landscape? And so one of the models that I used at the time, and, and also I heard this in a podcast recently with uh, the CEO of Masterclass, he said this as well, which I love. What are the five things that need to be true for you to be right? You know, for this company to work out yeah. and succeed, what are those five things? And I think that's important for two reasons. The first one is it helps you focus. Because you're like, okay, I'm only going to do these five things, right? And as an entrepreneur, we think everything is important. You know, we want to like change that one little button to the one liner on your website to hiring this ops person or finance person or whatever and the product. And it's like, all of that is not important. Only a few of those things are actually needle movers to your company. So what are those five things that have to be true for you to be successful? The second thing that it helps you do as an entrepreneur is understand when to stop or pivot. And that doesn't mean failure. That just means understanding. That means opportunity. Exactly. <laughs> You're one step closer than anybody else who's tried to tackle that problem before. After the acquisition, I moved over to Alchemist and I started mentoring startups. And one of the things I told these companies is I said, everyone's trying to raise money, by the way, right? When you're in an accelerator, your goal is to raise money. And I would tell these companies that even if you raise a bunch of money, you're just prolonging death. That's all you're doing because your product isn't there yet. If you don't have something that people want to pay for or just use every day, you're just prolonging death. So figure that part out first. So I think that's super important, understanding if you're actually on the right track or not with, with what you're building. Sounds like a lot of what you're saying is uh, through part of your journey, you learn to get comfortable with failure and not to see it as failure. And that's one of the things we constantly have to coach employees. This is not like school where you need to get an A plus on everything. If you're not failing, there's a problem. You're not trying enough. We need you to fail. And that's hard for people to get out of that mindset when they've gone to school for 20, 24 years of their life, whatever it may be. And they feel like I got to get an A or a B on every single assignment I've ever had. No, not in the innovation world or the business world. We need you to fail. And that's, that's a hard pivot for a lot of people to make. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the, it's the mindset that we're taught, right? For, for 12 to 16 years, we're taught don't fail because you can't do a test again, right? That's why, that's how, you know, by the way, that we don't have an education system. We have a filtering system. Hmm. If it was an education system, you'd be able to write the test over and over again until you get, you know, a 90 plus. But the fact that we have a filtering system doesn't allow you to do that. You get a 65, you're stuck with that 65. 
because now we're using that to filter you to the next step. And that's something I fundamentally disagree with, that we need to separate the education system and the filtering system into two parts. In TKS, we don't have homework. We don't have grades. We don't do any of that stuff. We are education. Other systems can filter you after that. But when you're in TKS, you're learning and you're growing. And on failure, one of the things that we talk about is you don't fail. You're either right or you learn something. That's it. And one of... One of the things I love uh, that Vinod Kosla said, so Vinod, you know, started Sun Micro and, and Kosla Ventures. And I, I really love this quote, which he says, the consequence of mitigating risk makes the prospect of success inconsequential. Hmm. That's so good. What I really like about that is what Vinod's saying is the more you try to de-risk yourself, the lower the upside. Yeah. Right. The prospect of consequent uh, success becomes inconsequential. You're doing it. You're doing it just like everybody else. The more you de-risk, the more you look like the next guy out there. Yeah, exactly. I love it. So Naveed, one of the things that, uh, you know, I wanted to ask about, because this, this applies to some of our founders uh, in our portfolio companies at Mammoth, where we have our health and tech fund. What was your initial involvement with venture capital like when you first started talking to VC? When I first started talking to VC, it was for raising money for the company and starting to understand like how VC works. And I think everyone should understand how VC works if you're raising money. I think one of the biggest problems a lot of founders make is they don't understand the perspective of the, the investor on the other side. And it is a numbers game to the investor on the other side. You have to understand their fund size. You have to understand their time horizon, their LPs, who else they're talking to right now. You have to understand that they can only make a couple investments or you know a handful of investments in the year. And it's not about your company. It's about comparing your company versus all the other companies. And if you have the problem returning the fund, you know at least you know x amount of times, three x or five x or something, because they know most of their portfolio companies aren't going to go anywhere. And do you have the probability of making that large return. And, it, and I think entrepreneurs just think like, oh, they care about market size. They care about this. It's like, yeah, but why do they care about that? You know, how are they thinking about this? So that's when I first got exposed to that. And that was actually through Alchemist. So Alchemist Accelerator, in my opinion, is the top enterprise B2B accelerator. And so I'd highly, highly recommend it. And Ravi, who runs it, is just a master at understanding the investor and VC game, especially for B2B startups. And so that's my first kind of exposure to it, getting Ravi's guidance on how enterprise works and, and enterprise VC. After that, after the acquisition, you know, I made a couple of angel investments, not, you know, great angel investments, because I think I was more hyped into it, you know, like, oh, like I'm a, I'm a founder that exited and I, I'm going to invest in companies. And it's not the greatest investment. You know, as an individual to make an angel investment, I mean, you know this from an investor standpoint. In a stock market, you have liquid assets. If I buy Cisco, I can sell it tomorrow. If I buy Microsoft, I can sell it a day later. But if I invest in a startup, I'm locked in. Might be 10 years, might be 15 years. You never know. And it might be never. Exactly. And that's something that, that I didn't fully understand. You know, that am I going for liquidity Am I going for exposure? Am I going for network, brand? Like, what is the thing? And a lot of my friends like investing in startups because it gives them a network. You know, if like, oh, we're all investors in this company, that, you know, gives me a, a door to those other people, right? And they're paying for that ticket. 
<laughs> but if you're doing it to make money, I mean, the general thought process is if you're angel investing, you want to invest in at least like 20 different companies because the probability of failure is very high. You know, uh, through Wharton's venture program, Wharton said it was closer to 500 at the angel stage. So I don't know how accurate that actually is, but uh, some we'll, we'll just call it somewhere between 20 and 500. And that's a <laughs> lot of businesses to be buying into. <laughs> yeah. if, if all you want to do is meet a couple of people, I, I can probably figure out easier ways to do that. Oh, I totally agree. Well, Naveed, I certainly don't want to keep you all day here. I think uh, the the other thing that I do want to make sure that we tell our listeners about is just the part of your journey when you actually started to work on your exit. So, you know, at this point, uh, you've, you've built Airpost up. You started not knowing anything about security. You started with a bet on where the future was headed. And I love that. What a great thing for our listeners to hear. You don't have to be a subject matter expert. I personally am not a biotech or a healthcare subject matter expert in any way, shape or form. I was actually giving a talk uh, to the neurosurgery department at Johns Hopkins one time. And I kept talking about how it's the amygdala in the brain, that part of the brain that helps govern our financial decisions. And there were just so many snickers in the room. Well, it turns out uh, somebody finally raised his hand and said, uh, you mean the amygdala? Amygdala is a Star Wars character. And I was just, you know, mortified. I'm giving a talk at Hopkins and I'm in, you know, the biggest idiot in the room. But anyway, I, I love that you pointed out you don't have to be a subject matter expert to be a leader in that space. You just have to be able to get a great team to support your vision. And uh, so I appreciate that. So you you build up Airpost. Now you're in this stage where you're looking at potential exit opportunity that ends up being Box.com. How did all that transpire? I think it's about structuring serendipity. That's the way I think about it. So at the time I was in Palo Alto, the box office was in Mountain View, which is like 10 minutes away. We were in a very hot space. Gartner, the analyst firm, just classified it as CASB, Cloud Access Security Brokers. Our competitors were raising tens of millions of dollars. We were a young team. One of my mentors told me not to raise money because he said, if you raise money, the dollar amount for a company to acquire you goes up significantly and the equity you own goes down significantly. So you could literally make less money because you raised money at a higher valuation. And if a company pays you 30 million, but you own 10%, you know, you only make 3 million versus if you own hundred percent and the company gives you 3.5 million, you know, obviously you make more, right? You're ahead and you had more control to get there. All of those things. And so we took his advice. We didn't actually raise too much money. We did, we did raise money, but not too much like our competitors at you know crazy valuations. And I think that one made it a little bit more attractive to box. But also, again, they were down the street and we were having conversations with a bunch of other companies. But when it came to box, you know, I met with one of their corp dev guys over lunch within, you know, 24 hours because it was like, oh, hey, I'm here. Okay, cool. Let's just grab a bite. And when it came to the back and forth and meeting the team and Aaron and, and everybody, it was just a quick, you know, Uber ride over and quick back. And so I think people underestimate at that time location. I think now with COVID, it's totally different, but maybe it'll go back to that. I think the ultimate message that I take away though is structuring serendipity. 
what environments do you have to put yourself into have a higher probability of luck and serendipity, right? It's not just assuming if you're in your house all day coding, you're going to happen to come across the best people and the best customers and the best VCs. Like you got to put yourself out there, especially to all the introverts that love sitting at home coding all day or whatever the case is. Can't do that. You got to meet people. You got to put yourself in environments where you can get lucky. I love it. Great story. Uh, you've had tremendous success and we're sure appreciative of everything you're up to. Uh, I'm going to wrap us up with the two questions we finalize every interview with. The first one is the question that everybody is wondering. So as we've been talking, this is the question that everybody has been wondering. And that is, where were you and your brother? What were you and your brother actually doing when you decided that the problem was the root cause behind the root cause? Were you actually on surfboards? Were you playing cards? Uh, where were you? It was a hot tub. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love it. And where was this uh, aforementioned hot tub? If I remember correctly, the address of my apartment at that time was 555 San Antonio. It was uh, like in Mountain View right across the box office. And so I used to actually like literally wake up, walk across the street, go to box, go back and forth between my place and, and the office. I was, I mean, I still am. Like I love working on stuff. It, it's not work to me. You know, when I was at Box, I loved it. I loved building projects. I loved everything about it. And so I would actually, I mean, this is a little bit of a deviation. I know we're ending off here, but I'd be at the office at like one in the morning and guess who else was there? It was me and Aaron, the yeah. CEO at Box. Yeah. And when you have that entrepreneur, you know, blood, you don't think about nine to five. That's right. You don't think about it. nine to five is I'm not against it. I, th I actually think people need nine to fives. I think people need to have that separation with their life and their work to be happy, you know, and, and some not people. get stressed out. Some people. I think a lot of people, in, in my experience, I think a lot of people need it. But there are some people that actually thrive without those. And, it, and I think those people love what they do. And I think those people, that's what they prioritize. You know, like I prioritize building things. I prioritize working on things, creating things. And that's what I love, you know? And, and so, yeah. And that obviously that's what Aaron loved at the time too. And so yeah. we're just kind of the only people there at one in the morning. Anyways, side story. And even for entrepreneurs with a family, well, my coach, my executive coach uh, in one of my companies asked me one of the best questions he could ever ask. Cause I said, Hey, how, you know, gosh, I really want to prioritize my family, but I love what I'm up to. And, and his question was so spot on David. He said, Tommy, Tommy, quit thinking about it. Like you have to choose. Why don't you figure out how to do both? And that was the light bulb moment for me as a husband and a father and as an entrepreneur and an innovator was that I don't have to choose between all those things. I get to chart my own destiny. That's part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur. And so it changed my thinking completely. And I want to offer that encouragement out there to all those founders or potential founders who are saying, oh, but I've got a family and, you know, yeah, I can be super passionate. What I used to do a little bit like, what Navid's talking about, I would hang out with my family. I'd tuck my kids into bed. I'd read them stories. We'd have dinner together. I'd hang out with my wife, have a date. And when the family was all asleep, man, I was alive at work. <laughs> so, you know, uh, as long as you can get away with uh, not a ton of sleep, then that can work out incredibly. So, um, Navid, we're going to wrap up actually with the final question that we always ask. 
which is the actual question that people want to know. And the actual question people want to know, I'm sure some of our listeners, either they are part of that young, curious, ambitious generation that you're talking about, or maybe they have students or children or mentees that they know of that represent that demographic. If those people want to get a hold of TKS or want to find out what you're up to and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, there's a couple of ways. The first one's the website, which is tks.world. Pretty simple, tks.world. Explore that. There's lots of great content on there. There's even a tab that's meet a student. And so you can actually meet an alumni and ask them about their experience in the program, which is great for if you have children who are kind of on the fence because their parents told them about a program and maybe they're like, ah, my dad told me I don't want to do it. But now they can actually talk to someone who's like them and understand the experience in the program. Uh, so there's hundreds of kids you could probably choose from in that list. The other one is Twitter, which is at the K Society. So K is a knowledge at the K Society. Instagram's the same thing at the K Society. Uh, and you can just see what TKS is all about. That's the best way to follow. Uh, right now we have applications open for the virtual program. So kids around the world can apply. We also have in-person programs in currently in Toronto, Ottawa and Vancouver, which are open. I think the New York, LA, Boston, and Vegas ones are closed right now. But if you are interested in person, any of those cities, we also have like waiting lists uh, to, to launch new cities for TKS. And all of that's available on your website at tks.world? That is correct. All of it's on the website. Excellent. Well, Naveed, we cannot thank you enough. Thanks so much for spending this time with us here at Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.